Hey y'all, it's Dr. Janae. What's up, it's Raven, and we are your favorite teacher therapist duo. And this is Houston to Healing, a podcast about all things mental health, but most importantly, a safe space for Black people. Our mission is to dialogue, find support, and share resources that help in our healing journeys. And I say our healing journeys because we too are learning and growing every day. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back with myself, Raven, and Janae. We are so excited to really just engage in this in today's conversation. One, last time we talked about strong Black women, being a strong Black woman, and how that has impacted like our lives and the work that we're doing to like walk into this soft life. And so one of the things that we said, well, a couple of things to hold ourselves accountable was take things off of our plate and delegate to others. So I want to I let you know how I tapped into that this week. Um, with work of, you know, giving things to other people. We said prioritizing rest, say no without explanation and mean it and mean it and let others help. And so I want to know just to, just to check in with you, what have you been doing, uh, Janae, to like really walk into that soft light and hold yourself accountable as well? Definitely been prioritizing the rest. I think I mentioned that last episode. Uh, so definitely been doing that, um, delegating tasks to others. I, I've been trying to hold myself accountable. And so checking in with myself first and foremost, making sure that I'm upholding this list that we created and checking in with you. So I definitely feel it's getting better. I feel my stress levels um, coming down and I feel like I have, I'm able to walk into more leisure time or relaxation, things that aren't my normal. So I just recognize that when I'm cognizant of this, the holistic, mental, emotional, physical wellness benefits that I'm seeing. So definitely uh, not only prioritizing it, but trying to make sure that it is standard practice in my life in all domains. And so, but it's hard. It's difficult to make sure that you're doing these things and you're checking this list multiple times throughout the day. Mm -hmm. That's that's the part, checking in, checking in with self and, and making sure that we are each other's accountability partner. So yeah, I'm hoping that listeners, you are also doing the same um, as you are walking into what we call a soft life and really just like taking care of yourself. So with and that- taking, And, and this, walking away from that strong black woman label, like it, like yes. yeah, putting that cape down. I think that's the putting hardest that part. Down. Putting yes. that cape down. Yes. And strong. So last week we talked about basically how the- the title strong black being a strong black woman, right? Like how that has impacted our lives. And I know that Mm -hmm. one, you are very passionate about discussing and dismantling the strong black woman label. And so Mm -hmm. for this part too, I want to get into like, where did that come from? Why? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Again, we've talked before offline and even on the podcast about how that's just something that you inherit. It's something that you're expected to do and you walk in it oftentimes without realizing it. And so I just think like the self-discovery of like being an adult, going out on your own into the world, going to college and our experiences, I was like, why is it that I noticed myself and so many like-minded women um, have all these responsibilities and burdens at school, at their jobs, back at home, in their relationships. So I think when I just became more aware of it, and again, the socialization, I always recognized it as a kid, but I I never really questioned it or pushed back. But when I was a young adult, I started to, um, and that really sparked my curiosity for research. Um, And so there was a lot of different things I did in undergrad, um, various different topics, various disciplines that pertain to research, but I know that that every single topic that I worked alongside a professor with, or even like the independent research I did myself as an undergrad, it always came back to like, how are black women impacted? Like that's always been my passion is like focusing on centering and uplifting black women. 
Um, so one other, in addition to black women being something I'm passionate about and dismantling this label, something that I'm also very passionate about is, um, investigating college, calling attention to, and hopefully one day dismantling the prison industrial complex, which disproportionately impacts our black men. And in more recent years has um, you know, start impacted black women as well. But at the time when I first, you know, begun this journey, if you will, it was heavily focused on the disproportionate incarceration rates in the black community for our men. And so I was like, how do you kind of focus on the two because they're related in ways that we may not understand or that are not being talked about enough in academia and research, et cetera. So did a whole set of like undergraduate research and undergraduate research is cool, but it only goes so far. Right. Um, Yeah. So when I was investigating and understanding better for myself and finding out how I was going to contribute to the research on the prison industrial complex, it was very male centered, as I've already mentioned. But how black women are inadvertently affected was not something that was talked about um, and how black women are forgotten about in this process was something that was really forgotten about, because if a black man is incarcerated, a black woman is affected as his mom, his daughter, his sister, his romantic partner. Um, Because again, we assume the burdens of our family, our community. That's just culturally what we do. So I just felt like that part was really lacking in the research and in the data. So um, that's kind of where I found my lane. Um, I was like, okay, these are two things that I'm super, super passionate about. How do I um, make sure that they're both being centered and how can we, call attention to and start to change those things. Um, You know, dismantling the prison industrial complex is a much bigger, larger structural task. Um, But so I I focused more on the psychological effects on black women and how we can better address that. Because if that's unfortunately a reality at the moment, how do we center and focus on um, the problems that it brings to the black women who are left to be the pillars of the community? Yes. And it's, it's wild because I remember your interest in that research in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first time I actually thought about it in that light. I never, mm-hmm. even having incarcerated loved ones and being like that firstborn daughter, you know, taking on a lot of responsibilities in undergrad. And I, and I think that was the first time I had to like, when you, you know, we'll talk about, you know, we'll go to meetings, you know, college stuff. And mm-hmm. you were mentioning the things that you were doing um, are like really trying to tap into. And I think that was a the first time I acknowledged like, damn, this is a burden. Like, this is really hard. Um, the fact and I think I don't I haven't discussed this, but having a brother who has been um, very much affected by the prison to uh, school to prison pipeline. Right. I, I see that in his like his development and his schooling. And so being an undergrad and having him be in and out of, of jail um, was a lot. Paying for bail, um, paying for collect calls. Cause I, as I stated, mm-hmm. my mom didn't work. So I was the main one who was going and, and paying for that. And you know, you need a credit card, like all these things, putting money in his commissary. And it was mm-hmm. the first time when you had, I don't know if you remember, you had held something for folks in undergrad where we met in like, the ACDC. No, not oh, the yeah. ADC. <laughs> not ADCRC. In the ADCRC. <laughs> but yeah, it was the support group for, for it was, it was for group. the loved ones of incarcerated folks because, and that was sparked by my undergraduate research. And I largely talked about, I focused at that time on how college students 
Mm -hmm. uh, were impacted by having an incarcerated sibling. And I really was trying to investigate and understand how one sibling ended up at, you know, um, a top public research university, or it was actually open to, to anyone who, so it wasn't just our university, but how one sibling ended up in college and their other incarcerated, like what yeah. were the internal and external factors that played a role in that. Um, and what was birthed out of that research is the the group that we had for uh, siblings of incarcerated folks and how we kind of navigated that process. I um, mean, that was in collaboration with, you know, my research mentors and my professors um, for my scholars program. But yes, I, I do remember that you were, you was right alongside. Yes, you, was, you was at yes. the group faithfully every week. I do remember that. Yes. And that, that, but that was the first time I actually realized and sat down with like, wow, this is actually, this is hard. It's not just mm -hmm. like, you know, of course my brother is dealing with being, in, you know, incarcerated, not being able to see family, right? But I didn't think about the toll that that was taking on me. I was just like, okay, I just got to make, make, make stuff happen, right? I got to yeah. put money on his books. I got to answer the calls. I got to do things. And then that was a moment I stopped and paused and was like, damn, this is a lot. And no one had actually asked me, Mm -hmm. how I was doing with that until literally those sessions and hearing, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of black women going through that same thing. I think that was the first time I felt. Cause it was all women, right? It was the, mm -hmm. no, the, and that, oh, and that yeah. was one of the things I, I, girl, I have to dig deep in my memory, but that was one yeah. of the things I remember. One of the themes in that research was that it was often the female sibling, the sister yep. ended up in college and the brother ended up incarcerated. Yep. It was very rare that it was a, a sister that was incarcerated and vice versa. And the group was overwhelmingly um, with individuals who identified as women. Um, but, you know, in thinking about, there was a lot of things that came up about that. And as an educator, I know that you're very familiar with this and, you know, the school to prison pipeline was a big part of how individuals, the young black males in that study were socialized to um, be excluded from the classroom and be suspended yes, and, you know, yes. being labeled and tracked and all of those different mm -hmm. things. Um, and the, for whatever reason, or for a number of reasons, their sisters were, you know, tracked down the gifted and talented path or were, you yeah. know, mentored and were, um, there was an environment that was cultivated for them that led them down the path to going to college. But, um, so, yeah, so that was, again, there's, there's been a lot of different things that I've personally um, self-reflected about as it relates to um, incarceration and strong black women, but also in a research setting. But yeah, that's kind of how it started. And that was what um, set the tone for my doctoral research, um, which is a little bit different. Like I said, I really, in, in that project, I really wanted to focus on the prison industrial complex and strong black women. I was like, how do we look mm -hmm. at and investigate these two structural issues and how they play into one another? Because I hadn't seen a lot of existing data and research on that. And so, and you mentioned the difference between your doctoral program and your, your research that you did for that. What was the relationship between being a strong black woman in the prison industrial complex that you did find? Yeah. So as we mentioned, like, you know, black men have been and are dis disproportionately incarcerated um, due to a number of factors, you know, the war on drugs, the marginalized laws and sentencing, like the disparate sentencing that affect like crack versus cocaine laws, for yeah. example, um, thinking about like the three strikes law, like a lot of things that um, existed or do still currently exist. And then like the structural inequities that stem from racism and classism. Like there's so many things that, you know, I'm like, trying, yes. I don't want to go too much, but there's so many, yeah. like this is all birthed out of racism. Like, and yeah. it's birthed out of like as far back as chain gangs. Like there's so many things that have us to where we are today as it pertains to the incarceration of black males. Um, and then again, like we kind of mentioned the school to prison pipeline is another one. So there's so many things that 
make the reality of incarceration the reality that it is. And there's an extensive data that shows the effects on the prison industrial complex on black men specifically that are being incarcerated, as well as the black community at large. Um, And then there is some data that exists that looks at how black women are affected as a result of this, again, as individuals that are in relation to these black men in some way, shape or form, or again, collectively, when we're thinking about the community um, or on a societal level. But there was there is very little data that looks at how the strong black woman schema is a part of this expectation for black women to be in partnership with incarcerated black men Mm -hmm. and more specifically how black women's secondary prisonization has detrimental effects or similar to those that are incarcerated. So secondary prisonization is just kind of saying like, you know, like prisonization by proxy, like when, when, when a black man that you love is incarcerated in some way, shape or form, you also feel those effects. No, you are not behind those walls. No, you are not, you know, on a 23 hour lockdown to get one hour for rec. Like I'm not trying to, act like black women who have not been incarcerated have that same experience. But in a lot of ways, there are detrimental effects that I think are often forgotten about um, by society at large, but even sometimes by the black men that we love who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this project was about and what it brought attention to. So the study found that there's an overwhelming majority of black women with, again, incarcerated relatives or romantic partners and how they were impacted emotionally, physically, and financially. And this is because they assume various roles while supporting their incarcerated loved one. And so emotionally, they you know deal with worrying about their loved one's safety. They have to advocate on their behalf for like through legal and social justice outlets, providing the funds for um, th- that legal assistance or for bail or for their items of daily living. Again, hygiene, food, clothes. You just talked about yourself. You know, you were putting money on your brother's yeah. books and um, to putting money on the phone so that you could be in communication with him. Just and all of the other logistical matters that come when you have someone that you care about that is incarcerated, when you're attending That's, court dates, when you have to coordinate visiting someone in prison. Um, and prisons are lot, often yes. super remote. So there's a yes. lot of prep yeah. and travel. And then you have to be dressed a certain way. Yeah. Um, and you can only visit them on certain days at certain times and how you have to flex your work schedule and all of those different things. Yeah. Um, and then another thing that I didn't really even think about necessarily, but that was uncovered in this research was like how black women have to not only take care of their households and their families, um, but how you have to do that in your loved one's absence. So again, if you're thinking about talking about a brother, if your brother has a business or your brother has children, um, or things are again, your brother has just basic things that he has to he has to pay his registration for his car every year. Yeah. So if yes. he has a long sentence, you have to think about that or you have to sell that his items that. or put his things in storage. Same thing with the father. So we often think about incarceration and we think about that person's girlfriend or wife. And it's bigger yeah. than that. It's broader than that. It's, it's children standing in the gap of a father being gone. That's, so yeah. it's that child assuming more responsibility or parenting their siblings because it's now a single parent household, or even mm-hmm. if it was already a single parent household, that father's gone. There is no weekend at my dad. So you're yeah. doing a lot there's more. No co-parenting, yeah. yeah. There's, there's no co-parenting because the yeah. co-parent is incarcerated. So you assume these roles. And that was a big theme that came about. Um, And so there was so much that came from this research that was overwhelming, but in a good way, because it put it on the table and it got people to talk about it. It got people to recognize, like you said, for yourself, when we, you know, had the group start in undergrad, a lot of people were like, I never thought about this because again, it was our norm. It was, Hey, I got to do this. And, and, and I think for me, 
one of the things that I was thinking about from like a psychological lens was when you're in college and something is happening in your life or in your family, if God forbid, one of your parents is dying from cancer, you can go to your professor and be like, Hey, I need an extension on this paper. Or I just want to let you know where my headspace was at when I took this midterm, um, you know, whatever there, there's accommodations. They're going to send you to like a student resource center and they're going to try to partner you with the school, the student counseling center. But you don't have that same flexibility to be like, my brother just got sentenced to a 10 year bid. Like I'm not doing okay. Like my dad just got life. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like they just came and picked up my uncle yesterday. Like you, you don't have those same, um, that same empathy, those same solutions. It's just Mm -hmm. like, and then you don't even feel comfortable talking about it. And so that was what was also similar in the themes in, in this current research in my doctoral research was people held onto the this burden they held onto these problems by themselves because of the stigmatization of having someone that you love being incarcerated but when you pair that with being a strong black woman you know you've been given that label this badge Mm -hmm. of honor um society has etched it into your brain that you're supposed to figure out everything by yourself in general let alone the stuff that you're ashamed of so it was, it was so difficult. And I know one of the questions that was a part of my research was I asked the women who participated, I said, you know, um, was, did the incarcerated men in your life ask or expect you to be this support for them? Or did you just assume it? And overwhelmingly the response was, you know, I wasn't asked, I volunteered, or again, Mm -hmm. this is what I was supposed to do. I never even thought about like, once I heard this person was down, I knew I had to step in. There wasn't even time for them to call me and tell me what they needed. It was like, I was already on it. And that's a part of the effects of being given this label. Um, It's just expected of you. Um, And then I think the additional part, and you and I talked about this last week was as a black woman and, and being given this label and being given this cape at an early age, you know, you, when something needs to be done, you assume the responsibility because it's expected of you, but more so, you know that it's not going to be handled as efficiently and as effectively if someone else besides you handles it, unless it's another black woman. But the second you yeah. oh, the lawyer's up, no, no, I, I'm about to make the calls. I'm going to handle this. And, oh, I heard this in my home. No, you, you step in because you know it's never going to get done as well as it could be unless you're doing it or again, unless it's delegated to another black woman. So- there was a lot that, you know, played into or factored into the emotional, physical, financial, and overall psychological well-being of the participants in this study. Um, it, it's, it's so much. I'm trying to, you know, answer your question concisely, yeah. but there's there's so many layers to this and I could go on and on. So I'm trying to like, okay, go back to, you know, what did I find between the relationship on the strong black woman trope and the prison industrial complex? The outcome was that there was an impact in black women's holistic well-being, their physical health, as I mentioned, there was, there were issues that they attributed like in part or fully to having or supporting an incarcerated loved one. So they talked about like lack of appetite and stress and all of those things that some of them had to go to the doctor for. And some of them even talked about um, physical health diagnoses that just came from subsequent years of stress, which mm-hmm. again, as black women, we live in a perpetual state yes. of stress, unfortunately. And then when you add this on, so there was a lot of physical health symptoms that um, were reported by the participants as well as just their physical expectations. So again, the running around, the coordination, the helping to take care of kids, even when they weren't 
their own kids. Again, the aunt stepping in yeah. to take care of her nieces Stephen, and yeah. nephews, the grandparents stepping in to help with their grandchildren, the children stepping in to help with their siblings, with the siblings in yeah. light of incarceration. So there was so much physical stuff. Again, the giving up your weekends because that's when visitation is. A lot of respondents talked about the maladaptive coping mechanisms that came as a result of this. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot more drinking, a lot more smoking, a lot okay. more um, reckless behaviors in terms gotcha, of sex yeah. that they previously weren't engaging in, but they were like, I couldn't cope I with need this. An outlet. Yeah, yeah I, I need an outlet and I don't feel safe or I don't feel yeah. like there's a space for me to talk about it. So here's what I'm going to do or here's what I've seen. Um, and even to ahead. touch on that, I can only imagine that any participants also share that as they are holding on to this, right? Mm -hmm. Other family members are probably also using them as a sounding board or as a, mm -hmm. you yep. know, kind of a therapist, right? Like even for myself, mm -hmm. like I'm going through this, but I can't, like everyone's coming to me like, oh my gosh, Raven, this is so hard. I don't know what to do. And I'm giving you advice when I'm mm -hmm. also struggling too. So I'm also imagining even mothers like having to explain to their kids mm -hmm. and be that emotional kind of like support for their child mm -hmm. as well. And other black women having to do that for other family members. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Oh, absolutely. That was, um, so that participants in my study who were, um, romantically involved with a black male incarcerated loved one, um, who had children, they identified the highest levels of stress, depression, and isolation kind of exactly because of what you just said. So, you're dealing with your own stuff emotionally mm -hmm. and you're dealing with all the logistical stuff to help your incarcerated partner. But then you also have to deal with your child or your children's emotional fallout and how they navigate that and the behavioral issues that they may be experiencing in school as a result of not having their dad. Um, and then you have to take care of the household. So yeah. you're a single mom dealing with kids that have emotional problems as they should because their dad is gone you dealing with your own stuff and then you're supporting that incarcerated loved one yes. so uh, yeah. the ways in which they were impacted was extremely um more severe than yeah. individuals that identify differently with having an incarcerated loved one so that was called for attention for again when we're thinking about therapeutic interventions um that was where it was like this part of the population that identifies are individuals that Therapists need to really understand the depths and the magnitude of what they're going to and what support they need, um, because it is far more in depth than other individuals. But across the board, it was it was hard for all black women, regardless of their relation to the black men. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, I, they identified a ton of mental health issues that some were in treatment for, some were not due to the stigmatization or feeling like that they couldn't find a therapist that related to them. But stress, yeah. depression, anxiety, PTSD, those were overwhelming um, self-reports. And some had been, again, diagnosed by mental health professionals or by primary care physicians as a result of their... Um, their loved one's incarceration. Additionally, there was the financial burden. Again, we've been talking about that, but yep. these women, again, stepped up and stood in the gap. They were working extra jobs to ensure that they could support their loved one. Um, they, some of, again, when thinking about the women who lost their partner, they were like, I now had to rely on government assistance. Like I could not uh -huh. carry yeah. this household anymore By when myself, we were both yeah. doing it. Um, so there was that, and there was a lot of shame involved in that. Um, and respondents talked about how they were like late on their bills because they, and again, this is, this is black woman. This is being that glue. But I, re I remember there were uh, reports and in, in the study where they were like, look, if it came down to my light bill and money on a phone or, or, you know, a package That's, so that he yeah. could eat, we're going to sit in the dark because he has to eat. He has to have 
a way to make phone to calls. Connect, so, yeah. and so it was like, again, that like, I'm going to deprive myself. I'm going to go without, I'm going to work to the bone. Um, I'm going to skip on my basic necessities Sessions, to make yeah. sure that was just the expectation. But that some of the women talked about, I worked a night job. I started driving for Uber. I started driving for Lyft all to make sure that everybody had what they needed. Mm-hmm. But when you, in later questions, you realize that they always forgot about themselves and that's, that's what we do. Yeah. Um, and so that was um, that that was difficult to to see, to hear, um, to process, and to put into words in like an academic, you know, again in in, in a doctoral project to be like, let's talk about this, like, and and what do we do from here? Because yeah. um, it's there's so much more that was you know found in in things of that nature. But those were the highlights, I guess, is what I would say. But it was a lot to digest and to, then to give back to people who don't know what I'm talking about, who yeah. haven't experienced this, who cannot relate to you and I and listeners mm-hmm. that are like, oh yeah, this, I'm you saying exactly what I go through or what I went through. So that was, I think the biggest challenge for me is taking all this in and then regurgitating it that honored their stories and called attention to like, no, this is not just some like little sad sob story. Like we really need to be focusing on yeah. this population in response to the prison industrial complex and what we can be doing. What were some like, trends of participants are where where are your participants from like i think i want also folks to understand like who was being surveyed who was being like who was a part of your work so folks can know like the like the faces of it i guess without Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. so the participants in my study were um you had to be 18 years or older of course Mm -hmm. so you had to be an adult um you had to identify as both black and as a woman and you had to currently have or in the at at some point in your life have had an incarcerated black male um, anywhere in the United States. So those were the only limitations is identify as black, identify as a woman and be an adult, an 18 year old or older adult at the time of the survey um, with the current or previous incarcerated black male loved one. So that was my but it wasn't restricted to anything else in terms of like region or um, income or education levels, none of that. Um, And I'll talk a little bit more at the end about what I found in that part of my yes. data um, because they self-reported all of those things to me as well. But to go back to the part where you were talking about like, how does a black woman talk about this? How does she mm-hmm. find a space for her? How does she seek therapy in this? That was one of the things that was talked about was like, you know, some of them did engage in therapy and they focus more on just, Hey, my stress levels, my depression gotcha. levels, just very okay. standard things that a therapist Thanks, is trained yeah. to address. But when they wanted to talk about all of these nuances of race, class, status, incarceration, etc., it was harder um, because they felt like people weren't competent to talk about that. Or again, they were like, I'm going to immediately be judged. And so black women, ironically, or or probably not ironically, they found community in other black women. That's where the majority of them went. They were like, I'm going to go find other black women that have similar experiences that I can lean on that could be my shoulder. So it's like, again, that healing that we need often always comes through. It comes from and through us like period. And so that's, that was definitely something that I talked a lot and highlighted in my actual project was like, we need more culturally competent therapists. Um, mm-hmm. We need therapists to understand this phenomenon better so that we can be the support for individuals struggling with this. Um, so yeah, so if anybody is you know, dealing with the impact of having an incarcerated loved one, I would absolutely look at you know, look at the therapists that you are able to see through your insurance that are in network 
and then sit down and do a consultation with them and ask them, mm-hmm. what is your experience with this? What do you know? Because again, there are therapists that are trained in trauma, but trauma is exactly. a very broad yes. umbrella term. What kind yeah. of trauma? You know, so you want a culturally competent therapist. And I talk a lot about culturally competent therapy and it's bigger than um, a therapist of color. It's different. It's bigger than a therapist understanding the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Um, cultural competency means so much more. And this is a part of cultural competency that not everybody is is equipped to deal with so so ask to put that question on the table hey i'm dealing with the effects of you know the mental health effects of incarceration with somebody i love like what is your experience and that doesn't mean that that therapist has to have had an incarcerated loved one but what do they understand about this how deep do they can they go in understanding what you're dealing with to help you navigate Navigate what you're feeling yeah absolutely no, that, when you said that that's it, it made me think like as a black woman you finally have the courage to go seek someone out and you seek someone out and they they can't really give you what you actually need right because mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you said that cultural competence is like is missing and because these conversations don't happen i'm glad that you have you have done this research so then folks can then think about it mm-hmm. yeah and there was a question um that was asked about um seeking help and 80 percent mm-hmm. of the participants were like i struggle to seek or ask for help and they were talking about again just this expectation that i handle things i'm the one everybody else goes to how can i ask yeah. people for anything how can i ask how can i expect people to understand um so that strong black woman piece was became such a an integral piece of this research um because again unfortunately Many of us have incarcerated loved ones or who or have had an incarcerated loved one. But when you add that layer of black woman and black woman who has been given that title, that that title of strong, who's been given that cape, um, it makes it so much harder. And they were impacted so deeply. And I saw myself in in this population. I I have been this population Mm -hmm. before. Um, But they talked about. Again, just the internal and external challenges experienced as being a strong black woman having to deal with this. Um, it impacted a lot of respondents' faith. They were just like, dang, like another thing, another wow, another else, challenge, yeah. like another another I weight I got to pick yeah. up and no one is there that for me to lean on. Like, it's always me. Like, I like, and so that was, that was a big thing. Um, I know that, again, they talked about the stigma that they faced or th- that caused them to not seek help. Um, but they also talked about like stigma by proxy, like how they would be judged because they, if they were to open up and say, my blank is in prison, yes. then it was like you got looks about who you were, where you came from. Like, you know, you they automatically assume that whatever that person was locked up for, they did it. And they were yeah. this person that was beyond rehabilitation. And you were, too, because you affiliated with them because that's your yeah. brother. That's your dad. That's your man. Um so there was there was a lot in that that came from the study again about the ways in which they were um, financially impacted, emotionally impacted, physically impacted, just this burden of having to always pick up for everyone. Like you said, not only that incarcerated loved one, but the other family who wasn't as strong, that person's kids, yeah. yes. all of those things. And some of the quotes um, or, or paraphrases, I'll say, I remember um Every single person that participated in this study, there was a question about, have you been uh, considered a strong black woman by family, friends, or your community? Mm -hmm. And every single respondent put yes, that that was, they, they had that label. And so when they were asked to kind of elaborate on it, um, they said things like, this is the only role I know how to play. Like black people are taught to be strong and it's a way of life for me and women in my community. Um, they were like, you know, I'm a strong black woman or the the world sees me as such because I wake up every day and I make my contribution to society despite the everyday struggles of being black and being a woman. Um, and like 
the talking about like having to hide those struggles, including those related to mental health. Um, and then I remember this direct quote from somebody and it stood out to me. And I know that you, I, I know that you'll relate to this um, just based on our experience together. And yes. I related, but the quote literally uh, that she said to everyone in my family, I'm a strong, educated black woman who speaks on social issues and is really woke. In reality, I'm just a tired 20 year old girl who wants to have fun at college like everyone else. And I was like, wow. girl, yeah. wow. I was like, listen, I like, just be, yeah, you just I was like, exist. I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like did, did I participate in this study? Yes. But yes. Wow. It, it, it highlighted so many things that, again, it highlighted all the burdens that you're expected to take on, even at an early age. But again, how you get this praise. Oh, this girl's yeah. in college. Yeah. She's woke. She's speaking on social justice issues. She's, she's like, just, I'm just yeah. trying to have fun. I'm trying to get this degree and turn I'm, up like yes. that's what I'm. But, but life is not allowing her to be. She yeah. can't have that experience. Um and that there was there were so many gems that were provided by my participants that I'm, you know, eternally thankful for. But as simple as that statement was, it just it hit me. I was like, mm-hmm. that's the part people don't understand. Yeah. Um, and, and beyond having an incarcerated level, but that's the part people don't understand when it comes to black women and how everything is placed on our shoulders. Honest, like yeah. This girl was like, damn, I can't even go to college. I can't spend these four years learning about myself, pursuing yep. a career that I want to, you know, pursue wanna, yeah. and having fun in the process. I got to yeah. be woke. I got to be socially, you know, aware. I got to help whomever. I don't, I don't recall off the top of my head who the incarcerated person in her life was, but she had to carry all this stuff and I could not just that. be a 20 year old girl. And, and that's what she said. That's what yeah. I want to be. I want to be a 20 year old girl. And I can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and also even thinking about, just all the stuff that we, you deal with on a, just thinking of this 20 year old college student, like you're juggling your own life. You're juggling syllabus, due dates, all this stuff. Thinking about the mom who has to juggle. Like, I mean, I'm also stuck on how you mentioned like folks, you know, had to get second jobs and had to do Mm -hmm. things like I'm Ubering at night, but also have to wake up for my daytime job. Right. So it's like, continuously sacrificing and continuously mm-hmm. like working yourself down to the bone. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Because from start, that's just been what's been put on us. Absolutely. And to go to the other part of your question, I promised myself I wasn't going to yeah. forget it because it is so important. When you asked about not only like what my participant body looked like, yeah. that was something that I made sure that I highlighted. Um, And I remember when I was sitting there, you know, in front of my committee defending and they were sitting there, um, you know, the dean and my mm-hmm. committee were just like, oh, my gosh. But when I I, I explained to them, um, because I think that we often hear when we're talking about this particular subset of the strong black woman, those who support and love an incarcerated loved one. Or in this case, a ton of them were talking about supporting many incarcerated loved ones, because, wow, again, this is a structural one, yeah. issue. Yeah. yeah. So once yeah, you once you come from a community that is being targeted, um, that has lack of resources, that is tracking these black men, like it's not just your boyfriend or your husband, it's your father, it's your son, it's your nephew. So Uncle, yeah. it's cyclical. It's and it's not always yes. at the same time. Somebody comes home, somebody else goes in. Yes. Um, but that was one of the things that I really wanted to hammer home. It is not just the this community or these type of black folks that come from this area of the world or this socioeconomic class so i remember talking and i closed out everything and i was like you know even though each participant was of the same racial background same gender and they shared the same experience of having an incarcerated black male loved one i was like my sample was extremely diverse in all the other demographic data i was like and i just really want to highlight how this problem affects black women from all walks of life Mm -hmm. and then that's when i hit him with the with the actual data yes and i was 
telling him, I was like, you know, the respondents disclosed that their incarcerated loved ones had sentences in Alabama, Arizona, California, Colorado, Illinois, Louisiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming. And then I was like, you know, they ranged from 18 years of age to 75 or older. Um, And then their education levels were from middle school completion to doctorate degrees. And then they reported that they earned from the the range of their um, income, some reported earning less than $10,000 annually, all the way up to people reporting that they um, earned over $150,000 annually. So I was just really hammering home to uh, my committee as well as to the readers who um, engaged in my research. I was like, this is, you know, the issue of mass incarceration and its subsequent impact on black women is not a regional issue. It's not a generational concern. It's not a matter of education or a factor of socioeconomic status. Like this is a plague. The prison industrial complex is a plague that has caused, you know, the black community tons of, you know, generational trauma and how the black women are subjected to this secondary trauma of prisonization. And then I know that I mentioned previously, again, the, the, when I'm, when I focus this, obviously from, as a psychologist, I was focusing on this from a psychological perspective and how we intervene as mental health practitioners. But, um, one other thing that was super critical that I kind of touched on was that 63% of the women who participated in the study reported that they were under the age of 24 at the time of their loved one's incarceration. So this really is critical for therapist to understand is that how prison impacts individuals during their formative developmental years. Mm -hmm. Like we have to really realize like you are a kid, you're an adolescent, like you're navigating life with your brother, father, cousin, uncle, whomever out of your life. And then assuming these burdens when you're still developing who you are, but your sense of self, your sense of self is already telling you that it is to serve others and to, Mm -hmm. and to not think about your needs and your wants and your desires. You are to exist to help everyone else and to be glue so you're already dealing and then again the shame the stigmatization the not having support like you're being taught that you can't talk about things that are bothering you such as having this person being gone um so I was really hammering home to, you know, in the study that the impact of trauma that incarceration has on adolescents who we are later expecting to be pillars of strength in our community um needs to be investigated further um and those individuals like i said the the two the two populations in my study that it reported the highest levels of stress depression and challenges to their overall functioning were those who were minors and were adolescents when their level was incarcerated and again those individuals who were the partners of an incarcerated person who had to deal with the partner stuff they stuff and the kids stuff those two folks those two populations they were severely impacted. They reported severe psychological impairments. Um, and so it's, you know, they, they had to be stronger than any other strong Anybody black else. woman in this yeah. study. And so yes. I, it was, it was a lot, you know, I, I learned so much, like you said, kind of like how you said, when you joined the group in undergrad, like I learned so much more about myself, even though I've been through having incarcerated yeah. loved ones and had to shoulder that burden. And I've researched this on various levels in my life. Like, talking to these women and understanding their stories. And again, all of those places they were from and all the age ranges, like I just got so much from them. And I was like, this is really something that we have to address. And we have to talk about more because it's, it's not, it's just like, it's a reality, unfortunately for a lot of people. And it's like, you just deal with it. And it's like, Nope. If we're talking about, if we're talking about 
calling attention to this cape and how it is suffocating us. And if we're calling attention to walking in ease and softness, um, we have to also talk about the things that are binding us and preventing us from doing that. And so I'm, I'm not, I'm not calling for black women to not support and love their incarcerated loved ones to leave them behind. I'm not saying that, but you have to recognize how much is being expected of you and how much you're making this a part of your reality and the the effects and impacts is having on you. Yeah. I think it's just more awareness and then it's more support seeking, which is all we've been talking about as we've been having this conversation yeah. about strong black women. It's like, okay, some of these things are your reality and they can't be changed. I get that. But what can you do to be more aware and cognizant of it? And how can you utilize your community, your village, your resources and support. And that's really what I wanted to call attention to. And again, calling out therapists, like you need to do more work so that you can support this population. You need to be prepared to navigate this with them instead of just being like, oh, I I don't know what to say. Like you need to be more culturally competent. And even taking it a a step further, I'm, I'm thinking what you just dropped on us of like, a lot was it you said 19 of your 30 participants were under the age of 24 and how mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the quote of the 20 year old also thinking about schools universities putting things into place mm-hmm. to better support students who may have an incarcerated loved one and also mm-hmm. especially um black women right like cool because I'm thinking like under 24 and and I think even just sitting here was like a thing for me because I was also an undergrad dealing with all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. My family's mm-hmm. calling me to read the important documents. And I'm like, yo, I... I got to find a little more. I just want to go out. Or I'm, I'm, you know, on my way to my second job because I have to have a second job because I have to put money yep. on this boy's books. But mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to do it, right? But it's like, if I had that support in place where I could have went to my professor and said, hey, like... My brother, like last night, you know, was was locked up and I'm still trying to like process that. Can I have the space mm-hmm. to process that? That would have been great. I think for me mm-hmm. to even to even do that, like this financial aid thing is late. Please give mm-hmm. me my, my, my financial aid. But I was dealing with X, Y, Z. Right. Or, yep. you know, so, wow, that just and I, I think the, the call for therapists is like that's a big one because mm-hmm. th- that's those are the structural changes are like that we that we need to have like realistic structural changes we can take again like yeah there's we are absolutely trying to dismantle the prison industrial complex and that's a larger conversation that's a larger undertaking but what can we do while it still exists and that was that was my thing it was like okay this is this is a reality and it's gonna be a reality for quite some time because it has been again since it's it's burst out of slavery so it's it's gonna take a lot of time to get rid of it but what can we do in the interim we can't just say okay this is what it is so that yeah that call that call to practitioners was a big one like no what can you do to support people who are dealing with this and are experiencing you know duress and mental mental issues as a result of this thank you so i mean this i mean even just me there's a lot to take on a lot to process even for myself because i think as you are talking i also am seeing myself even more like things that I didn't acknowledge Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I was going through at the time right like I'm able to put words or experiences to those to those things yep and that's and that's the whole point of you know walking away from that label is you realize like this isn't normal like it like you said so it was when I when I called for participants and people were like okay I got you I can do it and we went through all the you know the the, the preliminary steps when we started to actually have the conversations and they started to respond they were like wait like it, it was this 
Yeah, it was it was this enlightenment to a certain extent for everybody to be like, I just jumped in and did it. Or, you know, this is, again, my if my community has been plagued by this, this is, again, the normal, but really recognizing, like, nah, like, this, this is okay. not okay. Yeah. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And if it if I do have to do it, it's okay to say this is a lot, or it's okay to ask for help, or it's okay to need to process how traumatic yes. this is for me. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, we don't talk about the people who are outside doing, make making the things move, and it's always mm-hmm. Black women, and so, and not, mm-hmm. and we don't. And even just being recognized and like being like, I, woo, I know this is hard. Like even mm-hmm. that would have been for me personally, like, thank you. Like, thank you for acknowledging that. Okay. Can I, now that you acknowledge that this was hard, can I lean on you? Right. Like, yeah. And no, I would agree with, you know, all of the stuff that we've already talked about adding to our toolkit as we try to walk in this life of ease and walk in this life of softness, because this hardens you. Um, so I think softness is not just about, um, you know, luxury items and fine dining. And it yes. can very much be all of those things. But when I say softness, I just mean, again, like you said, the, to be able to say, this is a lot, I'm taking on too much. This is, this is traumatized me. Um, but I think in addition to all the stuff that we've outlined as a part of your toolkit and things to hold yourself accountable, I would add therapy, seek that therapy, yeah. but seek a culturally competent therapist. So it is completely appropriate to be like, what, what is your experience in dealing with individuals who, have experienced incarceration you know what how how do you navigate with people who are supporting and loving someone who's incarcerated and if that person is like flustered and doesn't know then that's probably not a good fit for you but if they're like you know i understand how traumatic that can be i understand vicarious traumatization i understand what you mean when you say secondary prisonization um or again they may say i am trained and I specialize in trauma and this is an extension of trauma, then I think you're at a good place to start with that person. But allow yourself to be vulnerable and recognize like, even if you feel like you're being stigmatized or judged, don't say it, don't stay anywhere where you think that that is your reality. But even if you think like, okay, if I tell this therapist that they may judge me or they may, you know, look at me a certain way, like push through and have the conversation, like get it off of your chest so that you can come up with actual action items and a treatment plan to address what you're dealing with because I think it's critical like you said to just have somebody be like this is a lot I see you what do you need but it's a different type of support to have somebody be like okay I'm gonna come together with you and what can we tackle in reality what can we realistically focus on to make you feel as well as you can in this situation that is not ideal and and that's where a therapist is going to partner with you to figure that out and if you're not already doing so make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you're still not following us on Instagram or Twitter, please do so at Hughes to Healing. That's H-U-E-S to Healing, no spaces. We'll also have that linked in the episode notes, but our Instagram is where you'll find our mental health resource guide and it's a space for us to connect. Yes, connect with us. We want to hear from y'all. Tell us what's working. Maybe you have some questions as you're navigating this journey, but just know that between Janae and I, we got y'all covered. We are always going to keep it real because this is a conversation and we are committed to this with you. So with that being said, Janae, is there anything you want to let them know before we sign off? As always, if no one has told you this today, you got this. Shout out to you for making it this far in the episode, but most importantly, for making the commitment to your mental health to show up and engage with us. So until next time, we will talk to y'all later. Bye.